CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's Friday, August 6th, 2021. Um, Usually we're in the middle of the summer doldrums when it comes to the news business uh, at this point in the year. That hasn't been true. It certainly wasn't true last year when we were in the middle of the pandemic. It isn't true this year when we continue uh, to be uh, getting news constantly about what's happening with the resurgence of the pandemic here in Georgia and across the United States. Uh, There's also a lot happening in politics. So this is kind of one of those shows where there's so much to talk about that I sort of I could start almost anywhere and we wouldn't be making a mistake. But here's what I'd like to do. Let me introduce the panel first. Uh, and then I do want to talk about the latest in terms of the pandemic, COVID-19, and um, and move on to other topics after that. So um, we're really happy that Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, could join us today. Patricia Murphy's taken a few days off. Deservedly, she's been working hard uh, writing the political insider column for the AJC and overseeing the uh, the blog, the Jolt, every day. Greg, we're very glad you could join. Greg, I can see you because we use <coughs> WebEx to see each other. You're all dressed up. Where are you, where are you heading? I know I'm not in my workout clothes <laughs> this morning. I'm headed to go see uh, Transportation <laughs> Secretary Pete Buttigieg right after this. Uh, you know, we're gonna t- we should talk about that. The- there's a full court press by the Biden administration to send people into this state. Um, we had uh, Javier Becerra here, uh, HHS secretary the other day. Janet Yellen was here, Buttigieg today. All of them promoting uh, the infrastructure plan and making and reminding us, Greg, of how important Georgia is now as a swing state. Yeah, another reminder of that Georgia remains a battleground state in 2022 and really 2024, too, right? There's an eye on that as well, of course. And three visits in one week, including this was Secretary, this is Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's first domestic trip since taking a cabinet post. So, so you know, again, it shows the importance of Georgia and shows the importance of the infrastructure measure for, uh, uh, for the Biden administration. Fred Smith is with us today, professor of, professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, uh, we're very glad to have you back. How are you doing? Uh, doing well, and it's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, Fred, when do you start classes again? Uh, so classes start in a couple of weeks. Uh, I got a service leave because I'm heading appointments, uh, which is the committee that hires new faculty. Um, so we're uh, we're getting that underway as well, um, but yeah, in a couple of weeks, and Emory has instituted um, a uh, a vaccination requirement for uh, for staff, faculty, and students. That's interesting. We knew that Emory had required masks on campus. Now the vaccine mandate uh, adds to that. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Eric Tannenblatt is back with us. Eric, of course, has been involved in Republican Party politics in Georgia, nationally, having worked with uh, presidential candidates and presidents from George H.W. Bush to George W. Bush uh, to candidate for president Mitt Romney. He was uh, chief of staff for Sonny Perdue and Governor Perdue's first term. And now uh, Eric is the global chair of public policy and regulations at Denton's. Eric, the world's largest law firm. I always like to add that. 
I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks for the commercial. <laughs> <laughs> how How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing I'm doing well. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, we're glad to have you. You know, this full card press by uh, Democratic administration officials have uh, got to be a little disconcerting uh, for Republicans. Well, I mean, it's smart for the Democrats, and I think Greg made a very good point. It just shows how uh, Georgia uh, is uh, definitely a battleground state, and there's going to be a hotly contested Senate race uh, in less than two years. And uh, the margins in the Senate uh, are so slim that it's an important race. Absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as the show progresses today. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome back to the show for the first time in way too long, uh, State Representative Stacey Evans, a Democrat of Atlanta. Stacey, um, you used to be kind of a regular on the show. Then you started running for office. And, you know, we sort of have a policy that when people are candidates, we we don't uh, put them on the, the panel. But I'm awfully glad you're back with us. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, sorry, I got back to my old uh, campaign tricks and had to sit down for a while, but it's nice to be able to stand back up with you. <laughs> yeah, well, we're very happy you could do that. Uh, all right, let's uh, talk a little bit about the latest on COVID. Uh, and Fred, I'm going to start with you since you're the constitutional lawyer in the group. Um, we heard the news this morning, and NPR just repeated it, that United Airlines has now joined uh, a group of businesses, which include, by the way, the Cox Corporation, who are now going to require <clears throat> vaccines uh, for employees. Um, and, and there are some questions as to the, the question of individual freedom versus the common good, right? I mean, there are certainly people who are pushing back, people like Ted Cruz and other Republicans saying, uh, this is a violation of individual freedoms and individual rights. But, Fred, help us with this, because I think the Supreme Court resolved this issue back in 1905 in Jacobson versus Massachusetts, when Massachusetts uh, uh, imposed a smallpox vaccine mandate. It was fought by a fundamentalist preacher who said it was a violation of his rights, and the Supreme Court said, not so fast, uh, this is for the common good. Fred? Sure. Well, the first thing to keep in mind, right, is that when it comes to uh, United Airlines and to other uh, private employers, um, the Constitution uh, isn't the primary kind of legal limitation uh, because the Constitution uh, is a limitation on government conduct. So that's not to say um, that some of the same values are not at stake. It's not to say that there aren't a set of uh, important questions that may be uh, right ahead of us uh, on the constitutional front. But it is to say that when it comes to private uh, businesses like uh, United Airlines, um, the legal limitations are going to be uh, questions like uh, contract, what's in the employment contract, um, et cetera, uh, as opposed to the constitutional limitations. Um, in terms of what the government can do, um, you're absolutely right. right? So uh, there uh, is the case that you referenced, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Uh, two decades later, uh, there's a case, uh, Zucht versus King, uh, out of Texas, which was a case about um, a vaccination of school-aged children. Um, and uh, in both of those cases, the Supreme Court said that it was within the police power of the states uh, to do this. And in the second challenge, Duke versus King, um, there was a due process uh, and equal protection argument that was raised by the parents, um, and uh, and that was rejected. And so that's um, that's the state of the law today. Um, and then finally, and I know this thought, but so I'll be quick. But the other uh, constitutional uh, piece to keep in mind um, is with respect to religious liberty, 
Uh, and so uh, many people think that, uh, that to the extent that there's not going to be religious exemptions in some of uh, government in government issued vaccines, uh, vaccinations, that would present um, some serious questions uh, under the First Amendment, especially as the Supreme Court has moved more and more um, toward a more robust view uh, of the definition of uh, religious liberty under the First Amendment. Uh, Greg, this becomes, um, it, it, it's good that Fred reminds us that the Constitution deals largely with what the government can do in terms of, of in this case, a vaccine <clears throat> mandate. But this becomes more interesting because we're now hearing uh, from the White House that President Biden, in an effort to step up vaccinations in the United States, uh, may actually be contemplating withholding federal funds uh, in, 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 uh, in an effort to get uh, uh, people to get vaccinated at higher rates. And uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see how that is um, uh, handled by the people who oppose uh, vaccine mandates. Yeah, people are comparing it to basically the federal strategy to try to get uh, Hey, Greg, we're, uh, Greg, we're losing you. I'm going to have to come back to you until we can get a better signal from you. Stacey Evans, weigh in on this for us. Well, Fred certainly covered the constitutional part better than, than I could ever hope to. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's no, it's no new thing that the federal government has a lot of sticks and carrots that it can use to incentivize certain behavior. Um, behavioral economics at play uh, 101 right there. Uh, but I just go back to this practical, common sense place where isn't this the social contract? Don't we have the, the responsibility if we're going to walk around in free society to take care of each other, do unto others, if you want to, if you want to take a biblical note to it? Um, this is about stopping the spread. And maybe somewhere along the way, the message got muddled as far as do this to protect yourself and do this to protect your family. And so people started looking inward and saying, well, we don't have any risk factors. We don't have diabetes. We're not old, whatever the case may be. We're not worried about us. Well, so what? Uh, this is not just about protecting you or even protecting, it's about protecting everybody by stopping the spread. Because as long as the virus has a place to live, it's growing, it's mutating, it's getting stronger. It's a living being. It's going to um, follow its own instinct, just like we do to stay alive. Um, I'll say right now, I think the virus is following the instinct to stay alive a lot better than, than we humans are because people don't seem to be that concerned um, about the fact that this thing is growing and mutating and really spreading out of control again. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I continue to be amazed every day that common sense has not taken hold and that the numbers themselves <clears throat> do not encourage this better behavior. But in the meantime, if it takes mandates, if it takes the federal government using the sticks and carrots at its disposal, I'm all for it because... This is about survival at the end of the day. Eric, let me put more specificity around what I said about the Biden administration. They are considering using um, federal regulatory powers and perhaps withholding federal funds from any number of institutions to push for more vaccines. And, and the White House is contemplating applying that to uh, long-term care facilities, cruise ships and universities uh, and other institutions and, and again, this is going to raise serious questions as to whether the government has the right to do this. I, I agree. I mean, I, I hope it doesn't uh, come to that. And as, as Stacy pointed out, I mean, some of it is common sense. But 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of information that's still not getting out to people. Um, you know, you mentioned Ted Cruz earlier. This, this really is not just a, a partisan issue. I mean, I, there are a lot of anti-vaxxers out there that are, you know, very liberal. Um, but, you know, the federal government still has the FDA ha- has not given final approval to these vaccines. I mean, it's conditional approval. And I think that, you know, before the government takes uh, some kind of harsh action. I think the, they need to come out and uh, approve these vaccines because I, I, I think there are some people that are skeptical. Uh, this is not my belief, but because it was a conditional approval, uh, they, they, they want to know why. And, and I think that there's still a lot of education that, that needs to be done. We're, we're, we're your listeners, uh, us on, on your show, uh, are following all this. But there are a lot of people across the country that uh, still have a lot of lot of questions. Greg Bluestein, I, I understand we fixed your audio, and I'm glad you're back <laughs> with us. Um, let, let's let's narrow this down to Georgia. Um, I do understand, and I can't find the percentage right now, but there's been a significant increase apparently in shots in arms in Georgia in the last week or so, just as there have been in a number of uh, red states where apparently the message may be getting through uh, to some people. Um, but Governor Kemp has continued to be skeptical about ma- mandating masks and uh, certainly is uh, nowhere close to, although he's suggesting people get vaccinated, uh, is the way in which he's suggesting it has been that sort of uh, half-hearted measure in which he says it's up to everybody's individual choice, right? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. And he, he no longer has the broad uh government authority that he had last year at this time uh, because he let the public health emergency lapse. Um, so he doesn't have, he can still, of course, take executive action, but it's more limited than he used to be able to take in order to impose statewide mandates. Well, we just lost Greg Bluestein's audio again, I'm sorry uh, to say. Uh, Sam, please, let's see what we can do to if, uh, fix it. Get Greg Bluestein back on the show on on the phone if need be. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's play a clip from uh, Governor Kemp, who was asked about what masks yesterday in an interview on Fox News, and he repeated something that he said uh, earlier uh, in the week. Uh, but let's listen again to how Governor Kemp feels about the possibility of mandating masks. We don't need mandates to know what to do. We need to talk to people about getting vaccinated to protect themselves from the Delta variant and these other variants that are out there. We're starting to see that happen again here in Georgia as our vaccination rates have gone up. But, you know, last year at this time, I trusted the local school systems working with the superintendents to do what's best for their kids uh, in conjunction with their parents and their local community. These mandates haven't worked. And it makes it worse when governments are not consistent. I've been consistent for 15 months. We got mixed messages coming out of the White House, out of CDC and other places, National Institute of Health. And that's why people don't trust the government anymore when it comes to COVID guidance Mm -hmm. and mandates don't work. Greg, mandates don't work, says uh, Governor Kemp. Yeah, he's trying to shift the blame to the Biden administration um, for what he says is mixed messages. Uh, even though, you know, as scientists will point out, science evolves. Uh, we're learning more about COVID. We're learning more about what it, what it takes to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, but there's evidence that mandates do work, right? 
Um, and there's certainly evidence that last year when you had mask requirements in, in certain jurisdictions, that uh, the, the, the disease spread more slowly. Um, but again, we're seeing a patchwork of restrictions and we're seeing private sector step in with, with vaccine requirements like, like Cox, like Emory, like others that have, that have called for uh, vaccine requirements to, to go back to work. Um, Fred, so we've got both question about uh, how you encourage people to get vaccinated as well as how you encourage them to wear masks. Let's go back to the vaccines if we can. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see American Airlines, uh, their CEO had written an op-ed piece just in the last couple of days explaining why he did not want to have a, a, a mask uh, or, 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 I mean, a vaccine mandate for his people. Now United says we're establishing it. Our people have to be vaccinated uh, by basically the end of October. And Delta Airlines uh, we're going to have to wait to see how they uh, move forward on this sort of thing. And, and the question is, are vaccine mandates in, in private businesses uh, going to start really accelerating uh, as the Delta variant continues to take its uh, course and as companies begin to fall in line around this idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that the combination of the fact that, uh, you know, there was at one point lots of people were getting vaccinated, it began to slow down. Unfortunately, it's beginning to pick back up. Um, but I think private uh, companies have started to try to fill that gap. Uh, so Emory's choice to require staff uh, and faculty to be vaccinated is a very recent choice. So the uh, Morehouse Spellman um, uh, had already made that uh, decision uh, a few months ago, but Emory uh, made it more recently. Um, and I think the Delta variant, in some respects, has been a wake-up call uh, because uh, the fewer people that are vaccinated, the more variations of this uh, and, and mutations of this that we're going to um, likely see. Uh, and so, and so I think that's why you're seeing this. Um, I also think that as uh, uh, as more and more private companies do require these uh, uh, require vaccinations in order to enter and participate into their services, um, you know, to the extent that people need to be vaccinated in order to kind of participate uh, in society and uh, and enjoy uh, life. Um, I think, I, I assume that we'll see more vaccinations uh, for that reason. But I do want to uh, echo uh, Eric's earlier point um, that, you know, I think a lot of us are hopeful that the FDA will, uh, will take this from being uh, a conditional or emergency approval uh, into uh, final approval because um, that is, uh, I think, um, complicating um, some of the messaging. Okay, um, I'll tell you what. Um, we've spent a lot of time this week talking about COVID, and for good reason, obviously. Um, so I just want to give you give everybody on the panel a chance to weigh in on uh, some of the latest news on uh, the virus and efforts to. Uh, stop it. So let's take that for what it is and move on to uh, another subject in today's show. Greg Bluestein, you filed a piece talking about the infrastructure bill, which is now in the Senate and which uh, there's hopefulness that it will pass. It's a the total number is something like a trillion dollars, but it's about half of that is in basically new money. But as you point out, in cities across Georgia, and, uh, and for that matter, state government, uh, there are questions about how the money will be doled out. The earmarks have been removed from this uh, bill, and there are, most of the, the Republican delegation in Congress is glad those earmarks are gone and didn't want them in the first place. So now cities have to find a new way to go after the money. Maybe you should help us by explaining 
what's the difference between earmarks and the other ways in which, say, a city like Macon would go about getting funds for infrastructure needs? Yeah, often those those big infrastructure projects are doled out either through uh, formula funding, you know, based on size and, and, and transportation needs and things like that, or by special grants. Um, but earmarks are uh, they used to be derided as, as as pork, right? It was it was specifically uh, uh, specialized grants from, put into laws uh, by lawmakers for specific projects. And they were discontinued a decade ago um, because they were seen as, you know, fuel for corruption and, and dishonesty and, 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 and other unethical practices. Um, but the Biden administration and senior Democrats, with, with some help from senior Republicans, have brought it back uh, in hopes that it could, with, with more transparency requirements, with hopes that it can uh, help bring more horse training, more bipartisanship, you know, winning over Republican votes because this or that project is in this. And there's about $140 million worth of earmarks that Georgia lawmakers secured. And they range from coastal research centers to, you know, highway to, to, to sidewalk uh, extensions, you know, that only cost a, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, so small potatoes in the context of a $1 trillion bill. Um, and you're right, those earmarks weren't in the transportation bill that's now being debated, but they could wind up in the overall federal spending bill that will pass later on this year. Um, Stacy, the interesting thing about earmarks, or any way that you dole out federal money, is that um, the fact of the matter is, uh, no matter how cynical we might be sometimes about our elected officials, one of the things they're there for is to help secure funding and help from the federal government for major projects within their districts. I mean, the most, the most basic example of that, of course, uh, was the, uh, the, the uh, Port of Savannah, the, the, uh, in which Republicans and Democrats worked together to get an enormous amount of federal money to deepen the port so that it could be competitive with the larger ships that are now uh, coming into ports on the eastern seaboard. Um, so it, it isn't as if earmarks and, and the fight for federal money is in and of itself something to be skeptical about, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think when folks are talking about not liking earmarks or not liking pork, they're talking about other people's earmarks and other people's pork. Um, people in Georgia <laughs> want whatever we can get, but they don't want other states. They're going to complain about other states getting what they want. Um, but I think the point about how this really can bring folks to the table and, and make everybody feel like a winner, which is really what you need to pass big legislation like this that is bipartisan, that has, there may be some things in it that somebody doesn't like, but if you can get something in there that they do like, then everybody comes together and passes this. I remember when I first got elected to the state house the first time around in 2011, my first session in 2011, talking, Larry Walker came to visit. He wasn't serving then, of course, but he came to visit. And that was when the budget was tight. I mean, there was just not any money to play with. And I remember him talking to a group of us and saying, I don't know how you are going to get anything done because that's how we kept everybody in line was to put something in the budget for them. When you don't have extra money to dole out to give folks things that they need in their district, this isn't about personal money. This is about big, huge needs sometimes in communities. And he said, when you can't do that, I don't know how you get people to rally around a bill. So I don't think not only is it not bad, um, it really is really just how things can, can actually get done, how big things can get done, which is what we need to be able to do again in this country. Eric? 
Yeah. So, so, you know, I, back in the nineties, I actually uh, oversaw the earmarks for Senator Coverdale and those, and, and those were local projects. And it was a way for a member of Congress to hear what the needs are in their particular state. And unfortunately they got abused uh, in the two thousands. And, you know, there were politicians that, you know, were accused of accepting money in order to get a, you know, put in an earmark for, uh, a lobbyist. And so when they did away with it, uh, really what changed is rather than lobbying members of Congress, you were then lobbying members of the executive branch of the government uh, who was making those decisions. Um, and, and now, with regards to the current situation, I, I think there's, there's two things. The House infrastructure bill had those earmarks, but the appropriations bills in the House have earmarks. And members of the delegation are uh, have made uh, requests in the various appropriations bills. So it's still possible that some of the earmarks that were in the House passed infrastructure bill actually still make it in the transportation appropriations bill uh, in the House. So, uh, you know, now that they've brought back earmarks, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully, you know, we won't run into the same problem that we saw in the 2000s and uh, abusing the system because they can serve a very good purpose in helping to fund these local projects. Yeah, Eric, you and I, I'm glad you mentioned your work with uh, Senator Coverdale on that because you and I both spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill back in the day when, in fact, earmarks were a very respectable way to try to get things done. On the other hand, perhaps the most infamous example, uh, Fred, of earmarking was Senator Ted Stevens, who became famous, the Alaska senator, who became famous for getting, I forget, the outrageous amount of money involved uh, for the bridge to nowhere, a bridge in Alaska, which essentially didn't connect anything meaningful to anything uh, meaningful. And that kind of became the totem for the anti-earmark sediment. It is, I think, yeah. I mean, they became synonymous with one another at a certain (laughs) point, right? Um, And, uh, I mean, to the point that I'll say, this is the most (laughs) robust defense of earmarks uh, that, I've heard <laughs> in one place the unanimity is really interesting, um, and it's also it's particularly interesting to hear it contextualized um, within uh, our super hyper polarized environment. Uh, and because I do think people are uh, are frustrated um, with the fact that it's so difficult for anything to get done, for people to to hear each other, um, and for things where it seems like even there's some level of agreement uh, that uh, that kind of the knives come out, and there's a lot. Uh, there's, a, there's an absence of trust. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, I'll just note that, it, that it's interesting to hear this presented as uh, as an antidote to um, uh, to that really um, toxic aspect of our politics. It's oh, also Greg, a way too, I have for, to... for oh, I was just going to say, it's also a way for bipartisanship because, uh, you know, members of the congressional delegation can all come together, Democrats and Republicans, and sign on to a letter or propose a particular earmark for their state. And it would be nice to see some of that happening again. Greg, I've got to get to a break. Before I do, let's make the largest point of all this, though. And that is an infrastructure bill 
is absolutely necessary. We have crumbling bridges and roadways and other pieces of infrastructure across Georgia and around the country as well. So this is no idle exercise in doling out federal money, Greg. Yeah, when you look at these appropriations and you look at the earmarks, you see like the biggest ones actually from Buddy Carter, a Republican congressman from, mm. from Savannah. It's from his district. It's $30 million to clear up congestion uh, around Duran Avenue near, near the interstate interchange that has been going on for decades. It's worsening for decades. So a lot of these requests are for projects that, that would really make vast improvements uh, to daily lives of, of, of Georgians. Okay, uh, I got to get to the first break in the show. We still have a lot more to talk about on the other side of the break. You're listening to Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, Eric Tannenblatt, Fred Smith, Stacey Evans all join us for Political Rewind uh, today. One, one quick note. Uh, I, I, we should not forget the fact that today is the 56th anniversary of the signing of the Voting Rights Bill. On this date, August 6th, 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed the bill, which um, was designed to, to, to stop all of the ways in which African Americans were being prevented from voting. Uh, and in his signing statement, among other things, President Johnson was so eloquent in it, as he talked about civil rights, both with the Civil Rights Bill in 64 and then this bill in 65. And one of the things he said in 65, uh, Fred and I, your, your family, been longtime civil rights activists, he said, the people for whom this bill is designed did not arrive on brave ships in search of a home for freedom. They arrived in darkness and chains, and he said this legislation was a step in breaking a link in that chain. A powerful statement, Fred, and today we still are concerned about the, the uh, ability of all people to get a fair chance to vote. Sure, right. I mean, my grandparents, I grew up in rural Georgia, weren't able to vote uh, in, until 1965. Um, and, you know, I mean, the state of Mississippi, fewer than 7% of uh, eligible black folks were registered to vote at, in, when that bill was passed in 1965, uh, and that quickly changed. Uh, and so uh, in, in the story of American democracy, um, that particular bill um, is really in some ways even more important than the 15th Amendment, um, because the 15th mm -hmm. Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War, uh, you know, quickly, um, you know, Jim Crow laws and violence set in, right? So part of how you get a number like 7% in Mississippi in 1965, uh, it's a combination of law, uh, but also the fact that when people tried to register people to vote, they were murdered, right? Um, and that's in, uh, that's in my parents' lifetime uh, and many of the listeners, that's in their lifetime. Uh, and so we've made so much progress uh, and, uh, and every time we can celebrate uh, the Voting Rights Act, the remarkable achievement that it is, uh, even though um, the Supreme Court has, of course, uh, invalidated important provisions in it. Um, but every time we have an opportunity to celebrate the Voting Rights Act, we should. Greg Bluestein, um, there's news today that Arthur Blank and his uh, company uh, are engaged in a new effort to talk about democracy and probably encourage voting as well. They have joined with Rock the Vote, with the Atlanta Public Schools and the New, and the, uh, New Georgia Voter Project to 
uh, teach some 2,000 students in the 11th and 12th grades in the Atlanta public school systems about the importance of democracy and the right to vote. Uh, blank in a statement about this said, quote, every voice and every vote matters. The right to vote is simply sacred. Greg? Yeah, and it's, it's another example of the sports world getting involved in the discussion over voting rights and ballot access. We saw that firsthand in Georgia over the last year with Mercedes-Benz Arena and Phillips Arena, sorry, Mercedes-Benz Stadium and Phillips Arena becoming the hosts of early voting sites. We saw that with LeBron James's group teaming with New Georgia Project, uh, the voter registration group here in town, um, to, uh, to blast uh, uh, the elections measures, elections restrictions. And, of course, we saw that with Major League Baseball yanking the All-Star game from, from, from uh, Tourist Park um, earlier this year. And now we're seeing that with this voter education initiative um, that, yeah, that aims to get 2,000 students more engaged in, in, in politics. And, of course, it's nonpartisan. It's not, not it's urging them to sign up as poll workers and register to vote or pre-register to vote um, for, for some of these 17-year-olds. And it's leaning on sports figures and celebrities and musicians and others who will be at this major event uh, in September. It's really interesting um, you know, to see the sports world get more involved as they have last year. Um, Stacy, as Greg points out, this is a nonpartisan effort. Um, at the same time, it is worth saying that um, Alan Abramowitz uh, at em of Emory University has said over and over again that if you're one of those people who believes that the New Georgia election law is designed to suppress the vote, uh, you're going to be surprised to see the, the response among Democrats. There's going to be a huge surge of people turning out to vote because they are so uh, upset about this law. And again, this is a nonpartisan effort. Uh, nevertheless, it sort of goes along with Abramowitz's notion that uh, people are going to mobilize in bigger ways than ever. Right. That people are responding. I mean, there's not just one way to respond to oppressive bills like like the anti-voting bill that passed this last session. There's There was little that we Democrats in the state house could do to stop it, but there's a lot that society can do to overcome it, uh, whether that's voting in numbers too big to suppress, whether it's um, ramping up civics education, which I think is something we've needed for a long time anyway. Uh, I think when the only place that folks are getting their information about voting or civics is with a partisan bent in their echo chambers of whatever news channel they choose to listen to, we can't be surprised that everybody talks about voting uh, in a partisan way. And so I think going into schools, talking to kids before they've perhaps formed their political opinions or, or picked their team, so to speak, that they're just getting a basic civics education. What does a democracy mean? What is my role in keeping that democracy? I think that can only be a good thing because then when folks start to hear the partisan messages, they've at least got a base that was rooted in something other than politics. So I think all this is great. And I, I thought when, when the um, anti-voting bill passed this last session that, uh, that the Republicans should be careful what they ask for, uh, because I think they're, while they had a lot of power to do what they did, um, there's, a, there's a lot that they perhaps are not prepared for that's about to hit them. Well, I, I, just, I just want to add, you know, there's a lot of what Stacey said that I uh, agree with in particular. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, everyone should vote. And the more participation we have, the better. I think efforts like what uh, Arthur uh, and his organization has just uh, announced uh, are great because uh, sports figures, just like uh, the entertainment world, have a lot of influence uh, over young people. And if it could take 
someone who's a, a junior or senior in high school and turn them into uh, a voter when they uh, turn uh, 18 years old, I'm all for it because everyone needs to go out and vote. All right. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch that project unfold. Uh, Greg Lucene, let's talk about election politics for the next uh, few minutes. Um, and, and I think we should start with a story that we talked about a bit yesterday, but you're on top of this in a way that very few other journalists are. Stacey Abrams announced that she is going to go on a nationwide tour of, quote, exciting conversations on politics, <clears throat> leadership, and social justice. She's going to be going from San Antonio to Durham, North Carolina. This is going to unfold in the fall, September to November. At this point, there are no uh, events sed- scheduled for Georgia. And, and this has led, according to reporting that you all have done at the AJC, some Democrats, some, to wonder, is Abrams actually perhaps thinking she has bigger fish to fry than running for governor of Georgia? Your insights, Mr. Bluestein? <laughs> yeah, I mean, every time, every time Stacey Abrams announces something, uh, new books, um, uh, you know, visits out of the state, um, you know, priorities that have nothing to do with Georgia in certain cases, like, like D.C. state, things like that, uh, you get Republicans kind of whispering, hey, she's not running, she's running for president. And you've got, you've got some, some elements of the Democratic Party, I don't know what the best word is, maybe it's freaking out <laughs> or, or getting excited, either way, depending on who you talk to, about her potentially um, not running. And I'll say this, you know, she, she's not acting like a typical candidate um, because typical candidates would, would probably already be in the race and they would, they would not be planning out-of-state tours that go on for weeks without stops in Georgia. But she wouldn't be a typical candidate if slash when she runs, right? Um, she's, 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 it's, it, it's very different than it was four years ago or three and a half years ago for her. It's very different than any other Georgia candidate with the, maybe the exception of Herschel Walker, um, who has the same sort of soaring name ID and and, and potentially fundraising power. But Stacey Abrams has outraised Brian Kemp and Vernon Jones in the first six months of the year through her Fair Fight group, and they have raised together combined, actively running for, for election. Um, she's got huge name ID. She's got no other candidates in the race for, for governor right now, who, so it's not like she has a, a rival to worry about at this stage. Um, and she's got you know universal support from, from national figures from as far as I've heard. Um, so she's coming into this um, with the ability to run a different sort of campaign where she doesn't have to try to get in right now and clear the field or anything like that because it's already cleared for her and she can already uh, she she can afford to go on national tours that don't that don't include Georgia and she can afford to sign you know book contracts and do other things um, you know even if she does run and and everyone I've talked to who who's close with her does think that she's planning to run again, although even with her close friend, she's still pretty tight-lipped. Okay, um, Stacey Evans, I get the fact that we journalists have a very different timetable than uh, people like you who've been a candidate for office, including uh, running against Stacey uh, Abrams for uh, governor uh, a couple of years back. Um, so I get it. We, we want to accelerate this. We want to see a race get underway. Uh, and that's uh, probably taints to some extent how we talk about it. But I do ask this question. Why the heck doesn't Stacey Abrams just put everybody out of their misery and say, yeah, I'm going to run for governor? <laughs> well, because we're talking about her. I mean, the, the thing that it's needed for people to talk about him and, and we're talking about her. 
Um, and the nation is going to continue to talk about her. I mean, she's got a role to play on the national stage, and, I, and she's playing it. I think that it's as simple as that. Um, I have no doubt that Georgia's still on her mind, and she certainly has a role to play here. I think she takes that very seriously. And if she was not going to be running for governor, um, I believe that she would have let us know so that we could prepare because she has an interest in holding Georgia and, and Georgia continuing to be um, really uh, for Democrats to continue to perform really well in Georgia. Um, now, you mentioned my race, um, the Stacey versus Stacey, which it seems like a whole other life ago. I mean, that was a, yeah. a second child and two law firms ago for me. I mean, a lot of life has been lived. Since then. Um, but, but I say that to contextualize the fact that when we were running in the primary um, for the 2018 race, we both had announced, um, I think we both announced in May of 2017. So certainly that race was underway, but our, fir our first disclosures, both of us were somewhere around $500,000 money race. Nobody believes that Stacey Abrams' first disclosure, whether it was last month or whether it's the end of the year, is going to be anything other than multiple millions of dollars. She simply does not need the roadway that she needed, the runway that she needed back then, or that most candidates, um, or, or she doesn't even need the runway that Governor Kent needs. I mean, let's be honest about it. Her fundraising base is way bigger than anything even our incumbent governor could dream of. So she just doesn't have to play by the same timetable. I have no doubt she's going to run. Georgia's on her mind. and and, and But let's keep talking about her. It's only going to be good for Democrats in Georgia. Fred and Eric, I'd love to get your take, Fred. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I agree with everything that I, I just heard from Stacey Evans. Um, that when it comes to, I, I think in life people have to choose, um, you know, what values they're going to protect, uh, what what role they're going to play in making in leaving the world more just and better uh, and fairer than they found it. Um, and so when it comes to Stacey Abrams, uh, it makes sense that right now uh, that she's focused on uh, on making sure that uh, that people nationally that, that there's the right to vote. Um, and uh, and, you know, as Stacey just put it, uh, there's no doubt that uh, that Stacey Abrams has Georgia on her mind, right, a graduate of of Georgia High School, of, of Spelman, uh, and uh, was a, 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 a bipartisan figure, uh, actually, in the state house, um, and uh, garnered the respect uh, across the board there. Um, and so she is a very special and, and unique figure. And, uh, and you know, I think it makes a lot of sense for her to, uh, to make sure she's focused on a, on a wide range of values. Eric, I want to get you in, but before I do, there's one person and a couple of his allies around him in the state of Georgia who have no doubt that Stacey Abrams is running for governor, and that would be Brian Kemp and his campaign team. They're already running against Stacey Abrams for governor, Eric. Well, sure. I mean, and, and you know, that's a smart thing for, for him to do. I, I am probably one of the people Greg was referencing that, you know, keeps, you know, whispering in his ear, she's not running. Um, she, she, uh, I mean, she's becoming national. She's become a national. I don't want to out you. And 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 the question is, the question is, is she going to? When is she going to get off the national stage? Uh, you know, to run for governor, and that's a hard thing to do. And she is not the same candidate that ran uh, four years ago or three and a half years ago when she, you know, came out of the legislature as the minority leader, uh, had you know, good relationships you know, uh, in some respect, you know, with, with the, the corporate sector. I mean, she's become more of a national Democrat. And I think the National Democratic Party is not necessarily aligned 
fully with the Georgia Democratic Party. Um, I think that uh, she's going to have to, if she does run, she's going to uh, run as a different kind of uh, kind of Democrat. I also think that she does obviously care about Georgia. I, I, I find it hard to believe that she would lead her party down this path thinking she's going to run and all of a sudden say, I'm not. So I think that uh, it, it's just a matter of timing. And when she wants to step off the national stage and turn all of her attention to uh, to Georgia. And um, okay. we'll see. I, I will. Okay, if I could just add one one more thing. I do think that Brian Kemp is going to be a lot more difficult of a candidate to run against than uh, I think people may think. I mean, the economy, you know, put the Delta variant aside. We don't know what's going to happen there, but the economy is in a good place. The state fiscally is in a good place. People vote uh, based on uh, their economic conditions. And so I think the climate is going to be good for Brian. Oh, I listen, I'm not going to have time because I got to a break to do a round with everybody on this. But I don't think people are under the illusion that Brian Kemp is going to be a, a, a pushover. I think he's in a, going to be in a very strong position. And I suspect that most of the people who we talk to on the show uh, will feel the same way. All right. The last word in this segment goes to Eric Tannenblatt, admitted Republican mischief maker. Uh, we'll be back <laughs> in a minute with more on Political Rewind. <laughs> Uh, Greg Bluestein, is Herschel Walker, as long as we're talking about Abrams, let's talk Walker. You're the one who keeps saying Herschel Walker is definitely in this race. And we're talking, we're hearing from other people saying the same thing. We're still waiting on that. But in the meantime, in the meantime, CNN had a fascinating report. Mitch McConnell apparently is telling aides that he thinks that Kelly Leffler and David Perdue ought to give another look to whether they want to run against Raphael Warnock. Are Republicans starting to grow tired of the Herschel Walker waiting game? And more important, do they think a Walker candidacy could implode very quickly? Look, there's, uh, I, I wouldn't say he's definitely in, but he's, he's certainly everything I hear continues <laughs> to say he's advancing his candidacy and he's likely to get in. Who knows? It's really hard as a reporter because there's no one – there's no political operation to speak to. And that's the most bizarre thing about all this. There's no, there, there for a time where we're a few aides who you can at least rely on who had some sort of contact with him. But right now we're, we're hearing from people who you know, might've heard from him three weeks ago. And so it's real, it's real hard to get a handle on this campaign, but, but at least there is a sense that, yeah, he's, he's going to move forward with this at this point. Um, I'd say, yeah, there's definitely Republican concerns. We've written about them for months, right? Uh, his, his, his background, his violent erratic history, his, his, his struggles with mental illness, um, the fact that he doesn't live in Georgia, he's lived in Texas for the last 20-something years, um, and, and, and does not have residency here, has, has not been in any of the Republican events, I can pretty much guarantee you when I go to the, to the big um, Floyd County Republican event tomorrow and up in north, northwest Georgia that every candidate will be at, he will not be there. Um, and so he's not out there with the grassroots. He's not there um, honing his issues. But again, it doesn't matter as much. He's, he's kind of like Stacey Abrams in that respect. And I'm not meaning to compare the two in terms of policy and things like that. But his name idea is so high. This morning, a poll from the left-leaning PPP polls came out that showed him basically in a head-to-head tie, statistical tie with Reverend Warnock um, in the general election. 
uh, and that shows you that's not based on his policies or anything because no one knows what his policies really are. That's based on his name ID, and that shows you how far that name ID at this, at this stage in the game goes. Eric, in the meantime, though, if Walker is, you know, equivocating, uh, it freezes the field. I mean, you've got several candidates, obviously, there, but you still don't have a big, big name to compete against Raphael Warnock on the Republican side. No, uh, and I've been pretty outspoken on this. Uh, If Herschel Walker is going to run, he needs to go out there. He needs to get in the race and run uh, because we don't know what he's like as a candidate. And the poll that you cited, Greg, you're absolutely right. It's name ID. But once you become a candidate, you have to answer the questions, the tough questions from reporters like you. And you're going to have to talk about where you stand on issues. And running for the Georgia United States Senate is not like running for president of the United States, where you could be on a reality TV show for 15 years and have high name ID and you run a lot of TV ads and Uh, You're running a national campaign in Georgia. You use the word, Greg, which was smart, grassroots. We're still a grassroots state at the party level. And early on in a in a primary, you have to get the grassroots on your side. And there are also a lot of people in Georgia that don't know Herschel Walker that have moved to the state. And so I don't think it is a given that if he enters the race, he automatically becomes the nominee. And I think the reason why, you know, whether it's true or not about Mitch McConnell is that in the event that Herschel Walker doesn't run uh, or he does run and his campaign falters, uh, both David Perdue and Kelly Leffler are two people that are known uh, and have a record and can enter the race. Uh, You know what you know what you're getting. The one last point I'll make, too, is I think that uh, Latham Sadler who was an unknown until he entered the race about three months ago, put some significant money on the board in three months. I mean, as someone who's raised money for political candidates, to raise what he's raised north of a million dollars in that short period of time is making people take pause and look at him again, who may not have given him uh, a serious look at first. Okay, um, we are running out of time, but there's one subject I really wanted to address at least briefly. Um, Stacey Evans, Marjorie Taylor Greene is headed to the Iowa State Fair. Uh, I've been there many times with presidential candidates. It is a proving ground for potential candidates for a president. Uh, Is there any reason to think she's actually thinking about mounting a presidential bid, or does she just like seeing her name in the national news? I'm going to put this in the category of who cares, and let's please not give this a sideshow any more attention. She's not, she's not a serious person. She's not a serious rep. She, she has no ability down there to get anything done for our state, and I'm really looking forward to a Democrat, hopefully my friend uh, Wendy Davis, uh, getting us a real rep in Congress. And in the meantime, she can go to all the fairs she wants to, and let's just forget about this side <laughs> joke. Stacey Evans expressing a view that many listeners uh, share with me when we talk Marjorie Taylor Greene. But Fred, I don't think we can ignore Marjorie Taylor Greene because she is a presence. She does have a constituency in North Georgia. And the th- ideas that she spreads need to be exposed so people can understand just what she maybe stands for. Fred, you got about 30 seconds to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, right, in the early 80s, Chip O'Neill said that all politics is local, uh, and there is this way that more and more it feels like all politics, to some extent, is national. And that's been the theme throughout this entire hour, and this is uh, an exclamation point on that. 
um, you know, th these are opportunities, I think, for her to raise money and, and have her name in the news. Uh, and she does a good job of that. Uh, Bluestein, there's no question that she is going to get a ton of national attention from the media when she's up there at the Iowa State Fair. And local media, too. I mean, we might go out there yep. depending on what she does. And the story is not, you know, what outrageous things she says, but it's her trying to export her her brand. I know Stacey Evans doesn't like that. And look, it's not maybe, maybe not what we uh, said about either, but she's trying to export that brand. Let's All hope right. she gets a Red picture Blues. with the cow made out of butter. <laughs> <laughs> that was Eric Tannenblatt, Fred Smith, Stacey Evans, Greg Bluestein. Thank you for a really terrific conversation on Political Rewind to end our week. We're out of time for today's show. We're back, of course, on Monday with a brand new Political Rewind. In the meantime, uh, I'm Bill Nygut. As I always say, please take care. Over the weekend, stay healthy. Yes, wear your mask when you're indoors. It seems like it's necessary again. And for all of the people you know out there who may not yet have gotten vaccinated, please come up with some way to encourage them to do it. But do it politely. We'll see you all again on Monday. Have a great weekend.